0: Amen. Thank you, David. Uh, good morning. Um, good to see some... Thank you. I like to Thank you, Dick. Good to have Dick and Lois back. Um, we are, this week, through... Uh, what's the holiday in September? I always forget. Labor Day. Thank you. I always get those confused. We are going to be uh, taking seven weeks, beginning today, to take a break from our study in Matthew and to look at just kind of a topical study of just the idea of leadership. Uh, that is because we as a church are entering into a very crucial time in our life as a congregation. Uh, if you're a member of our church officially, you should be looking for a letter from me this week uh, explaining some of those details. But the reality is, is uh, you know, to start a church on the back of two guys in their 30s is suspect to begin with. Jonathan and I went to a, to a pastor's meeting, a meeting of the Association of Pastors in the city of Winter Haven, and this is not a lie, of the 15 or 20 guys there, we were the youngest by 25 years. That's the truth. Uh, and so, you know, although we may be the official kind of, these guys are the leaders, which scares me to death, there are a lot of people who function in leadership roles in our church, and we feel like it's time for us to formalize uh, the reality of those other those other people who are leading in some capacity and to move to a process what, which our denomination refers to as particularization where we find men who can serve as elders and deacons in our church to lead us in the aspects of ministry, both in word and deed ministry in the church. And so we are going to begin today seven weeks talking about that, which will lead to nomination of those men sometime in the fall and then training them and so forth. So I'm very excited uh, for what's going to be happening in the church over the next year or so. And wanted to make you aware of that. This morning, we've got to just start to begin to envision uh, what leadership looks like in the church. And that's my job this morning. And I I feel the weight of it because in very real ways, we are people who are very suspect of leadership. We've only experienced leadership to be um, selfish and using its power and authority and influence for its own ends and not for the good of the people that it leads. And so I've got a lot of work to do this morning just to kind of give us a vision for what leadership might look like in the church and among God's people. So I want to do that by, we're going to do a weird thing, I'm going to, really this is two sermons, this is always dangerous when the pastor says this, there's really two sermons this morning, we're going to try to make it one, okay, so, there and there are only two points to the sermon and not three, but don't think that means it's going to be any shorter than it would be otherwise, because unfortunately that's not the case, but what we want to do is we want to look at the book of Judges, and I'm going to try to talk for the first part of the sermon, on, uh, just on the, the book of Judges as a whole. So a sermon on the entire book of Judges and kind of what the book of Judges is there for, and then bring it in to, to apply some of the things we learn there from what the New Testament has to say. And so you'll see it's kind of a, a mixed match of passages of scripture there in your worship folder. But try to follow along with me as we read from Judges chapter 2 and then the very end, the last two verses of the book, and then we'll come to 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews 13 just to kind of apply this in the New Testament, Okay. So let's begin the scripture reading this morning from Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done in Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath, Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all of that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now listen to this phrase. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And all all the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now look at the last two verses of the book of Judges. This is how the book ends. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Now, here's the phrase that we're going to land on. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now come with me to the New Testament from First Thessalonians 5, as we, as we look at just a couple passages about leadership in the New Testament. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then from Hebrews 13, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which you have not benefited, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is God's word. Okay. Now, I, I'm assuming a lot of us are, are unfamiliar with. Uh, The book of Judges in the Old Testament. So I need to give some background to help you understand. But what I want you to see is we're going to land on this phrase in verse 25 of Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The story of Israel, we've been reading in community Bible reading through the King, through 1st and 2nd Kings, and now 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And we've seen that Israel was the Old Testament people of God. God came to Abraham, the man at the very beginning of Genesis, and said, through you, I'm going to raise up a nation that will be my people, and that will be my instruments for bringing about my purposes in the world and bringing my salvation to the ends of the earth. And if you remember the story, uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, at the end of his life, had to go down into Egypt and live there because there was a famine in the land, and his son, Joseph, had risen to power there, and so they went down to live there during the famine. What, What what was meant to be a brief weekend away turned into 400 years of harsh slavery in Egypt. And yet after 400 years of slavery, God, now the people had grown to be a very numerous, a nation of people, and God came and he brought that people out of egypt and brought them into the land that he had promised abraham so many centuries ago and they went in and and conquered their enemies and and divided up the land according to the tribes and went in and lived there under the blessing and and the the you know the favor of god and then kings arose and all of this institutionalism began to happen and the, the people grew in number and they grew uh their kingdom grew and they grew in favor with the Lord and, and they reached a the high point, but eventually what happened is they, they, you know, their sin found them out and their kings led them astray and their leadership let them down. And eventually God had to come and do what he promised to do if they disobeyed him. And that was this land that he would brought them into. They had forfeited their right to be there and so he took them back out. He sent enemies, Assyria to the north and, Babylon to the south to cart the people away into exile and a lot of what you read in the prophets deals with this 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 haunting sense of loss that comes with but we were god's people and he promised to bring us into the land And and we went in there and we did it and yet our sin uh, Discovered us and he had to punish us by sending us out and when's he going to bring us back and when's he going to Restore to us what he's promised and the prophets are wrestling through this now what happens is is that some years after the people go into to exile in Babylon, a group of them come back. And God brings them back and he kind of starts over with his people. Now, I, I tell that story because most people believe that the man who wrote this book was writing it to that group of people who were coming back from exile in Babylon. That all of these history books, from Joshua all the way through um second Samuel. That whole grouping of books was written by one author to the people returning from exile, and the purpose of this book in that whole process was to show those who had returned how crucial leadership is to the success of God's mission among his people. Judges... Chronicles a time in Israel's history between the leadership of Joshua, you'll see that in verse 6, when Joshua is still leading the people, and the time when Israel began to have kings, starting with King Saul. And so there was this time in between Joshua's leadership, you know, which he took over from Moses, and the leadership of the kings, where the people were really without any established leadership and authority structure among them. So four times the refrain comes in this book, there was no king in Israel And everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. That's the thesis statement of the book. It's written to show the people why they needed a king, why they need leadership. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. Under his leadership, they've survived 40 years of testing in the wilderness uh, and come to the edge of the land that God had promised Abraham. Then the leadership passed from Moses to Joshua, and Joshua Joshua led them in, and they defeated their enemies And had great success. But then there was a time between Joshua and the time of the kings where Israel just languished. There was no king in Israel. No leadership. No established authority. And you see what happens in this passage. As we read, Joshua died. And all that generation of leaders died with him. And do you see there in verse 10, I mean, it's just this stark phrase. There arose after them a generation who did not know the Lord. Or the things that he had done. And what begins to happen in the book of Judges, if you read it, is there's this downward spiral that begins to happen where the people are given over to idolatry. And because of their idolatry and their sin, God brings an enemy against them and they go into captivity to this enemy. So uh, an enemy comes and overpowers them. And then in their distress and their anguish, they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord hears their cry and he delivers them through a judge. And these guys are like Samson or... Deborah or um, Gideon or some of these figures you might know in the Old Testament. And so God delivers them, and then things go really well for about 10 or 15 or 20 years, and then guess what? They go back to their idolatry. God again delivers them into the hands of an enemy. Now things are bad, so they cry out, Lord, please save us. He sends another judge, and they they deliver the people. But it's temporary because eventually they go right back into their idolatry. And this is the way it works, over and over and over again. But what happens is, is as the book, it's just fascinating. As the book moves forward, things begin to unravel very quickly. And stylistically, at the end of the book, things are much worse than they are at the beginning. And by the end of the book of Judges, Israel is in civil war. They're completely given over to idolatry. You have a man named Micah, who and this is in Judges 17 and 18, who's created a household idol and finds one of God's priests who's willing to serve because the price is right. He comes and becomes the priest to his idol. There's outright idol worship. In verse in, in chapters 19 and 20, you have, and I'm going to try to make this rated G as best I can, but you have the reenactment of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where a Levite, a priest who's traveling through Israel, stops in a town and is welcomed into one of the homes. But after dark, the men of the city come to the homeowner and demand that the homeowner turn him over to them so that they can sexually assault him. What happens is, is the Levite forces his concubine outside and they are so brutal with her that when they wake up the next morning, she's lying at the door of the house dead. And so what does he do? And I'm not, I, I could not make this stuff up. What does he do? He chops her up into 12 pieces and sends a piece of her to every tribe in Israel. And every Jew that was reading this would have known the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and would have considered it the epitome of sin and perversity. But what Judges is telling us is it's now happening. It's happening in Israel. Israel's become that perverse. And those who witnessed the stuff with the Levite and the concubine, here's what they said in Judges 19.30. They said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came out of Egypt until this day. And the translation of that is just this. It's never been this bad. I mean, it's never been like this complete chaos you know but why how did things get this way and the answer the book's answer is just this there was no king in israel so the book is an apology for leadership so what we want to do this morning is take a look at judges for just a few minutes and just ask why is it then what does judges teach us about why we need leadership and if judges teaches us something about why we need it then how does the new testament These passages in the New Testament show us how we can redeem it. So why do we need it and how can we redeem it? Or how does the gospel, you know, empower us to redeem it? But let's just begin then a a little bit more about this idea of why we need leadership, okay? Uh, And again, this is not necessarily verse by verse exegesis. It's things we're taking from the whole book. But the Bible teaches us that we were designed to live under God's rule and authority. And that all of the trouble... In the world is the result of man trying to wrest control away from God and to rule in his place. That's Genesis 1 through 3, right? All of the rest of the Bible is built on those chapters of the Bible. And undeniably, the Bible says that leadership is a good and necessary thing. And that living in submission to the authority of leadership is the godly response. And the reason for this is that all human leadership structures are seen as an extension of God's rule and authority. So... For example, in Romans 13, Paul tells the church that they are to submit to the governing authorities, to the government of the day. And then he gives his reason in verse 2 of Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by him. In the same way, Paul commands wives to be submissive to their husbands, but then he adds the phrase, as to the Lord. Now what does he mean? He means that... The, the man's authority over his wife is, doesn't originate in him; it originates in God's authority. It's an extension of God's authority, and so Paul says, "Wives, submit to your husbands, because in submitting to them, you're submitting to the Lord who's put them in authority. You're submitting to His authority by submitting to His lowercase h authority. In the same way, children, children, obey your parents. Paul says, but they, in the Lord. What does that mean? In the Lord. In other words, kids, as hard as it is, your mom and dad have been put into your life to bring God's authority to bear upon you. So when you obey them, you're not just obeying them, you're obeying God who's put them in that place in your life. Paul says, for this is right. And that word just means good. It's good for children to be in submission to their parents. And I know the parents will say, amen. Amen. But kids, it's good. Ready, kids? This is kids. It's good for you to live in submission to your parents. Can any kids amen that? It is. There's a few. We got. We almost got them. It's good because the Bible teaches us that all human leadership structures are seen as an extension of God's rule, and they're necessary and a good thing. Now, Judges shows us what happens in a vacuum of leadership when all sense of authority is lost. It's filled with the chaos of self-rule. So four times in Judges we read, and look there in verse 26, 25 again, because I just want to meditate on it for a few minutes. We read that there was no king in Israel. And then look at this phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I want you to just let that statement sit on you for just a minute. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you own a business, can you imagine gathering your employees together and saying, okay, here's the plan. Everybody do what is right in your own eyes. You know, if you're a teacher, can you imagine looking 25, 7-year-olds in the, in the eyes and saying, okay, here's the plan for the day. Everybody do what you want. Go. Yeah, the, now, now the kids are saying, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You wouldn't get anything done. It would be disastrous, utter chaos, and, and yet... In many ways, to some that might sound like good news, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Oh, man, that's what I'm striving for. I don't know if you're aware, but um, playing at uh, Theater Winter Haven right now is, is the production Rent. Uh, and, and we went to see it on Friday night, Ashley and I did, and it's, it's excellent. It's, it really is amazing. I mean, I just am floored that, that Theater Winter Haven puts on stuff like that. that we, have, we have one of the best community theaters in the nation. I hope you know that. Top five every year. Uh, you know, they are They're phenomenal. Uh, but this, this, this uh, production is a story of a group of friends who live in the lower east side of Manhattan in the 1980s. And the show is based on Puccini's opera La Boheme. And it is a, I was just thinking about this, it's a celebration of a bohemian lifestyle as the title of Puccini's opera suggests. Now, bohemianism originally referred to gypsies who were thought to have come from Bohemia uh, and others who were considered strange to the wider, wider society but but um, has come to refer to anybody who is unconventional or doesn't play by the rules, and a lot of times, you know, is kind of artistic. So, Rent tells the story of a group of friends who live in a who live a bohemian lifestyle, uh, and they see themselves, excuse me, as outsiders, as bucking the system. Their ultimate value is personal freedom and self-expression. Right? Uh, they are sexually promiscuous. A number of them have HIV. Uh, within the group, there are as many homosexual relationships as there is heterosexual relationships. There's even a drag queen. And so it's just, it's, uh, the, the theater was half empty when I was there Friday night. And I just wonder if Winter Haven's having a hard time catching on, because that's way outside of our box. Um, my favorite number in the show, by far, is called La, La Vie Boheme. And it takes place in a cafe in the middle of the production as an extended toast to bohemianism. And I I wanted to quote just a a bit of it from you, but then I went online and found the lyrics, and it was too vulgar for me to do so in church. But there's a couple of lines so that you can get kind of a sense. They're toasting, and they say, to going against the grain, going insane, going mad, to fruits, to no absolutes, and then to absolute, to choice, to any passing fad. I mean, the song really is a celebration of this statement. I mean, it really is. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a toast to individual freedom, to self-expression. You know, no rules. Nobody telling you what you can and can't do. No right and wrong. But in Judges, Judges shows this to be not a good thing. It's disastrous. And what's interesting is, try as they might, and I don't know if, you, if any of you have seen it, if you had a similar reaction, but try as they might, we left the show Friday night and we were just on the drive home just reflecting Uh, That there is like this aftertaste of hopelessness and despair. Walking out of the theater, and let me bring this a little closer to home because I realize that can just kind of seem out there. Because um, the hippie generation, which I'm sure we have some proud hippie generation members here, right, which was before my time or right about at my time, but became the grunge, you know, thing when I was in high school, which has continued to take different shape from generation to generation all of this is really a product of our cultural identity that we are a generation of people who for 2000 not 2200 plus years have been bound together by the common idea and that is a refusal to be ruled. The United States of America was founded on the principle of self-rule. We believe in a government and you can you can probably say this with me of the people by the people for the people. And so in some ways, if you look deep inside of that, there really is a very pragmatic approach to government on the part of most Americans. We consent to be governed, but only by a government that serves our selfish personal agendas. A lot of times, sinfully, I mean. And as soon as we don't like what's going on, we reserve the right to withdraw our support, to get angry, to complain, and sometimes even to revolt. So, here's what I want you to see. If you take the natural sinful inclination towards self-rule that Genesis 1-3 through shows... It's true of every one of us. You lay on top of that the American cultural ideology of personal freedom and you have a recipe for spiritual disaster. Because we are people so disinclined toward leadership. Two things in particular that, that this leads us to consider. Two things, two things that are kind of the fruit of this that we can kind of track in our culture. And the first is a radical individualism. You see, in times gone by, and even in cultures, other cultures in the world today, the rights of the individual always overshadow the needs of the community, um, whether family or neighborhood or society in general. In other words, what I meant to say by that is that in many cultures, the community is more important than the individual. And in times, this has been true in our own culture, but not today. Not, a, not today, for today in our culture, the individual is always more important than the community. And both can be dangerous and taken to extremes, but Judges shows what can happen when we lose a sense of community identity. Look there in verses 6 and following. After Joshua and the other elders of the generation died, another generation arose that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. In other words, they lost their story. They lost their history. Israel was always to be a people who were defined by God's salvation from Egypt. The Lord delivered them from Egypt and gave them the law to show them how to live as a redeemed people. And All of the authority structures in Israel were based on that salvation story. And when they lost their story, they lost all sense of authority, of something bigger, of something that owned them, of something that called for heart, loyalty, and devotion, and obedience. And in the absence of all of that, the individual, the self, became the ultimate source of authority. Everybody did their own thing. That's what Judges says. And the more secular society becomes, the more individualistic it becomes because there's no transcendent story. And then this leads, secondly, to moral relativism. If you look at that phrase one more time, when Judges says that everyone did what what seemed right in their own eyes, the word literally means straight. They did what was convenient or good. In other words, without any higher authority other than the individual, the process of deciding right and wrong and good and bad is relativized. Until there is no more right and wrong, there is no more good and bad, there's only what's right and wrong for me. And that's exactly where we are as a culture. What is wrong for you might be right for me. What's right for you might be wrong for me. We believe that. And the verdict of the book of Judges is that this leads to disaster and ultimately to judgment. If you live this way, it will destroy you. That's what destroys families and marriages and churches. Kids, if, if you disregard the authority of your parents, you're putting yourself in danger. I hope you know that. And so three warning signs as we just think about this for a minute. Three warning signs. I just wanted to throw these out there, and then I I hope we have a few minutes to get to these passages in the New Testament. Three warning signs for you to be able to track kind of where you are with what we're talking about. And the first one is just this. Warning sign number one is an elevated opinion of of your opinion. An elevated view of your opinion. I mean, how sure are you that you're right, and how sure are you that everyone else is wrong? Are you suspicious of yourself at all? Do you act like you're the authority on every issue, even if you have no idea what you're talking about? Anybody ever met somebody like that? You know, I even thought, in a conversation, do you speak more than you listen? Warning sign number one. Warning sign number two, how do you treat those who have a different opinion than you do? How do you treat them? If you're a Republican, how do you treat Democrats? Sorry, I got a groan from the back of the congregation. To that like, at You know, if you're a Democrat, how do you treat Republicans? If you're a Presbyterian, how do you treat Pentecostals? You know, civility and disagreement is a sure sign of humility, but if we yell at one another and just get full of rage at those who are differ, differ from us, it's a sure sign something's wrong. I mean, warning sign three, and this is the biggie. Can you submit to people you disagree with? One of my wife's one of the things I love my wife. My wife has all these great things she says, but I hear her say to to young women all the time about their marriages. She says, "You know, it's not it's not submission until you disagree with the decision. Until then, it's just agreement, right? Submission happens when you disagree and you have to do it anyway. Can you submit to somebody you disagree with? My friend Timo in Lakeland has parenting advice or advice for people who work on her. He says, "You know, you can you can disagree with me all you want to as long as you're moving to do what I told you to do." Right? Can you can you come underneath people who you disagree with? Do you have an elevated view of your opinion? Do you treat those who differ from you poorly? If so, be careful. Be careful. Now, see? Can you see how uphill this is? We have an uphill battle dealing with this leadership stuff because if leadership is that important, if it really is that important to success in living faithfully as a follower of Jesus Christ, and if we are really inclined naturally to hate authority that much, then what in the world are we going to do? And if you look at these passages in the New Testament, I just wanted to, to bring these in because I want you to see how leadership is just another way for the church to be a holy people that we can redeem. There's a sense in which the gospel make, can make us people who can redeem this idea of leadership in a culture that hates it. And so I just want to look at these couple, these couple verses for a minute and just walk through them and just kind of see, you know, what the scripture calls us to. In regards to leadership, and this is this—I don't know how to make this not sound like a self-advertisement. I promise it's not, um, because I I include myself in the one who needs to to figure out how to follow more than I consider myself someone who's trying to lead. So just just let's just walk through this for a minute, okay? First, 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So Paul commands the church to respect and then he says to esteem their leaders. And if I could summarize both of those verbs, Paul wants the church to recognize the significance or the importance of the work the leaders in the church are doing and to hold them in high regard for it. The word respect literally means to know. In other words, to understand the implications of what leadership is trying to accomplish. And Paul wants the church... Um, to understand what their leaders are doing and to esteem and love them for it, to hold them in high regard, he says there, you see that, because of their work. Always it's because of their work. And here Paul says, leaders in the church are over the rest of the church. And that word means to preside over, but it also carries the idea of caring for. So leaders, when it means that leaders are over the church, it means that they care for the church. They are to love the church, to provide for the church, spiritually and physically. It's easy to love Somebody who's doing you good. But Paul says, Paul says, love them because they do you good. But he goes on. Do you see that? He says, love them because they're willing to admonish you too. That word admonish means to correct. The church is meant to respect and esteem its leaders not only because they care for them, but also because they're willing to confront them and to correct them. And so we have to change our categories a little bit. Leaders are worthy of our esteem and our love because in caring for us and providing for us, they are loving us. But also they are worthy of our esteem and love and respect when they admonish us too, because in correcting and confronting us, they are loving us too. Hebrews 13 goes on. And in Hebrews 13, we're told that the church is to remember their leaders. And that word means to be mindful of them and their teaching. It's a present active verb, which means... Keep doing this over and over again. Keep this in your, continually keep them in mind. Keep going back to their teaching. Keep replaying their words in your heart and mind. And the reason the church is to do this is because they are charged, we read there, with speaking the words of God. In other words, there's an authority that is derived from their preaching ministry, from the task they've been given to open the scriptures and to bring God's words to God's people. And for that reason, Hebrews says, remember them. Hebrews goes on and tells the church to consider their leaders in verse 7. To watch them, in other words, to listen to them, to pay attention to how they live their lives, so that, the writer goes on to say, so that they can imitate or literally mimic them. And I went into Jonathan's office and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. That the leadership in the church is called to live such a life that it is worthy of the rest of the church considering and mimicking them. The church is to follow their leaders, to do the things they do to love the things they love. And then finally Hebrews tells the church obey your leaders verse 17 and submit to them, recognize their authority. Hebrews goes so far as to say don't make it hard on them, don't burden them, make it a joy for them. And then we're told why. Hebrews 13:17 because they watch over souls as men who must give an account. Now we're going to come back to this idea in the coming weeks. However, I want to say to you that is truly frightening because what it means is that if you're a member of this church and if you've vowed to submit to the leadership of this church and the leadership is vowed to oversee and protect you, it means that we have an appointment with one another on the day of judgment. And that I will stand before the king of the earth one day and give an account of how well I executed my job. So you see, the church is to posture itself in humility toward the leadership and to serve under that leadership joyfully. The leadership is called not only to look out for its own interests, but to selflessly love and care for the church's spiritual and physical needs. The church is to be for the leader because the leader is for the church. And so, you know, I want to just end with, so how do we get hearts to do that? If our hearts are naturally bent towards self-rule, then how do we become the kind, you know, to everyone doing as they saw fit in their own eyes? then how do we become the kind of people who can learn to love and be glad for the authority structures in our lives? How do we become leaders? How do we become leaders who can lead with humility and seek to serve those under our authority? And the answer to that is only the gospel can do that. I mean, only if the gospel is at the center of the church's life will that ever happen. See, Jesus has modeled for us the kind of humility and self-giving love required of both the church and its leaders. He is the exact opposite of all the small fish who try to act like big fish he is he was god and yet we're told that he submitted himself to his father just listen to what, the way jesus this is jesus is God, a very god and yet listen to the way he talks john 5 19 the son of man can do nothing on his own accord but only what he sees his father doing john 5 30 i can do nothing on my own john 8 28 i do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father has taught me jesus says i don't move unless the Father tells me to move. I don't speak unless He tells me to speak. I'm not my own man. I am completely with every breath under the authority of my Father. God said that. And In the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before His crucifixion, He summed up His whole life of obedience with one simple prayer, and you could say it with me, Not my will, yours be done. And All of the sin and misery that is in the world came because the heart cry of fallen humanity beginning with Adam and including every single one of us in this room is the exact opposite. It is not your will, mine be done. Human pride and selfishness are what are wrong with the world and that means the only way to make it right, the only way to save the world was through a second Adam, one who would reverse the tide of corruption and despair through humility and sacrifice and his heart cry would be the opposite. He would come and he would pray, not my will yours be done and after he was crucified and buried and rose again from the dead we're told in the scriptures that he ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of god the father and from there he sent the holy spirit to take up residence in our hearts and to take up residence in the church the holy spirit is his spirit so he has come to work into every one of us and into our church the humility and selflessness and self-giving love of jesus so you see christian leaders can't be in it for themselves They can't use their position and authority to hurt other people and promote their own selfish agendas. That's not the way of Christ. They're servants and they're called to love and care for the church and watch over souls as men who will one day face judgment. And so their heart cry like his has to be, not my will, but yours be done. But the church shouldn't abuse its leaders either. And the statistics are something like 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month. Due mainly to spiritual fatigue and burnout that come from having to resolve conflicts and deal with contentious congregations. And that shouldn't be either. That's not the way of Christ either. Churches are called to love and support their leaders and remember them and obey them joyfully so that their work is not a burden. So the heart cry of the church should also be in every one of us, not my will but yours be done. You see, to come to a close, we live in a world where those who have power and authority use it for selfish purposes. I mean, let's just be honest. And where those who are in submission... Resent it and complain and kick against it, and what a great what a great opportunity for us to witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in the way our leaders lead and the way the rest of us follow there 's only one possible there is only um, one possible way this can ever happen, and that is that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and become fascinated with his gospel and for that reason i 'm so glad i 'm so glad to get to celebrate this meal together this morning. As we take his body, which is broken, and his blood shed for us to our lips, we were reminded that this, this is how you lead well. And this is how you follow well. And so how wise and how good of our Savior Jesus to put this meal at the center of our life together as a church. And so as we prepare to come and celebrate it, let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the great shepherd of the sheep, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, the scripture says. All authority that any earthly authorities might claim to have does not originate in themselves. Uh, I I am grateful that though I am a man in charge and in authority over others, I am one who is under authority. Uh, And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take our hearts that so kick against this idea of, of being led and having to submit to leadership and that you would replace them, replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that beat. Uh, Put in our lips the prayer of Jesus Christ, not my will but yours be done. We ask that your spirit come and do that and we realize that the spirit has to come and do that because naturally we're so disinclined to any such thing. Come now as we celebrate this meal together. Use it as a means of grace as you promised to do to drive the truth of the gospel home to our hearts. And may that gospel produce fruit in us. And may that fruit bring you glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as you leave this place, no matter whether you go to lead, whether it be as a parent or as a husband or as a boss or in whatever capacity, or whether you go having to deal with uh, putting your heart underneath and being glad for the authority structures in your life and having to follow uh, the place you go, To be able to do that well as to the promise that's contained in this benediction of the heart of the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth towards you. And so receive then the benediction, this being God's pronouncement of his love and his his, um, delight in you. Uh, Receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.